Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Today, we're going to continue our series on uh, the invitations from Jesus. Wasn't Mel Forsyth Lee wonderful last week? So good, you guys. Oh, man, what a blessing she was. Um, just giving out the whole morning just felt just soaked in God's presence. And we're just so grateful for her friendship. And this morning, I wanted to continue in that series um, and talk about the invitation of the Father. And I wanted to do that in a different sort of way and work through one of the most well-known parables or stories that Jesus told in the New Testament. It's certainly the most painted parable of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Um, Artists throughout the decades and centuries have depicted the scenes from the story that Jesus told about a prodigal father about a generous and lavish father. It's the story of two sons, really, uh, not just the story of one son. It's the story of a couple of brothers uh, who find themselves in the middle of a, of a deeper truth that Jesus is attempting effectively to share with his audience and with us here this morning In Cleveland, Ohio, 2023, Jesus has something to say to not only dads, but um, everyone through the teaching of this parable. And so you you guys are probably already way ahead of me. You guessed it. We're going to be talking about the story of the prodigal son this morning. And the invitation I would like us to focus on is the invitation of the Father. What is the invitation of the Father? And for spoiler alert's sake, I'll tell you that the invitation of the father is homecoming. The father wants his kids to come home. Yeah. The father wants his sons and daughters at home with him in relationship. And so we're going to discuss that. And there are going to be various paintings that are going on the screens throughout the course of the talk this morning throughout the message for the time we have remaining. And I wanted you to see if you would uh, just focus. Maybe there's a certain painting that God draws your attention to and tells, tells you to kind of like, hey, pay attention to the way that the older brother looks in this. Or, hey, look at the father's hands in this uh, depiction of the prodigal son. The the most famous painting, of course, is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son, and I'll be taking from different references this morning for content in the talk, and one of those is one of my favorite authors, uh, Henry Nouwen, who is um, a Dutch priest, and he spent three days at the Hermitage where Rembrandt painted The Return of the Prodigal Son and just meditated on this painting and wrote this wonderful book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's one of my favorite books. There's also a a few other resources that I'll be drawing from, but I wanted you to journey with me through uh, this uh, invitation of the Father to come home, to come home, as he speaks to each one of us individually, personally, personally, 
I want us to see ourselves in the story, and rather than read the parable, let the parable read us. We think we're coming to read the Word of God, but the, re- the Word of God really is reading us. So let the Word of God dwell richly in your hearts. Uh, let the Word of God read you. The story really acts in, in two acts, if it were a play, the younger son and the older son. And it And its focus is about connection with God. Jesus is trying to relay a deeper truth here about how human beings connect with God. And so keep that in mind. Contextually, people are murmuring around Jesus as he tells this story. They're not really out and out uh, saying crucify him yet, but they are murmuring. And the things that they're murmuring in the shadows gossiping and slandering, the things that they're murmuring about Jesus are that this man eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. This one's, uh, this one's a maverick. This one is off his rocker. He has all of these big claims, and yet he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And it's so it's within that context that Jesus shares this wonderful story. Starting in verse 11 in Luke chapter 15, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property, it's a key word there if you want to circle that one, property, between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. There's another underlinable one there. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran, another key moment, to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Act 2. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. While he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, look, look, all these years, read that with disdain, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when this idiot son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your bro this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So good. The whole thing's so good. It's set in this context of three stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And so Jesus moves from, um, from an animal to an inanimate object to human relationships. And they're all kind of conveying the same sort of idea of human lostness and what it means to connect with God. What does it mean to connect with God rather now that Jesus is here? How do, we, how do we as human beings connect authentically with the living God? And right off the bat, in the passage, we see how not to connect with God. Yet, so often, many of us attempt to do it this way. We've been trying to do it this way for thousands of years, millennia. As we look at the story... We see that the younger son says to his father in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Now, in ancient Israeli culture, in ancient Jewish culture, it would be the oldest son who would get the lion's share of the inheritance. And that inheritance would flow after the father had passed away. So women could not own property in those days. The younger son would not get a, a huge portion of the estate. But the key word here in verse 12 is property, as the NIV translates it. And the Greek word for what Jesus said in this phrase is bios. Bios, where we get our word biology for life. And really it's connected to the land, and Jews saw themselves less like Americans do. When we purchase a house or we purchase property, we say what? That that piece of land or that piece of uh, wood and sticks and cement, that belongs to us. The Jews in that day would say, no, we belong to the land. We belong to the land. The land doesn't belong to us. And here's the brilliance of Jesus as he's talking about this father, his audience, definitely the disciples, but the, 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 this father that the Pharisees obviously don't know and have never heard of before. 
What Jesus shares in using the word bios, property, and the son asking the younger one, in fact, I mean, there would have been gasps in the, as Jesus, after every word, there would have been gasps in the crowd from the Pharisees saying, how could you say something like that? What, what heresy at every word. No wonder they wanted to hang him on a tree. Because what Jesus is saying here is that the younger son approaches the father while the father is still alive and says, I want what's coming to me now. And essentially, what the younger son is saying is that I want your stuff, I don't want you. How many of us relate to God the same way? The younger son in his lostness is communicating to the father, I want your stuff. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. And through this word property and how it deals with inheritance and the estate, what Jesus is communicating is that the son is asking for the father to actually rip himself apart to meet his own requests. And here we see the story of the cross, I believe, embedded in this story that Jesus is sharing. Jesus is sharing here what will happen to him in just a few short years. The father tears himself apart to grant salvation or inheritance for men and women. And so the younger son says, I just want your stuff. I don't want you. Basically, he's saying to the dad, I wish you were dead. I'd be better off. And so we read that the father grants the younger son's requests. And the younger son sets off for what the scriptures call a distant country, and he squandered his wealth and wild living. Now, that's a little bit of a poor translation. He's, what the younger son is doing is, he's, uh, what is win, he's winning friends and influencing people. So he's, he's throwing dollars. He's uh, throwing parties. He's providing meals. He's, he's all over the place trying to influence friends, win win influence and win friends. He squanders his wealth. He spends everything and then calamity hits. Famine hits the land. And so he began to be in need. Again, this is crazy talk from Jesus because what does the younger son do? He says he went, out, he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, any of you who are familiar with the kosher diet will know that pork and ham are strictly forbidden in a Jewish diet. And so Jesus is saying that this guy, this young man, was so desperately hungry that he went out and hired himself out to feed unclean animals 
The Pharisees would have been freaking out when they heard Jesus say this. No Jewish younger brother would do this. But you see, the younger brother is desperate. The younger brother is desperate. And he has this sense of desperation that actually acts as an initiator back into the household of the father. And I think there's a key piece here for us to see about what it means to go through adversity, about what it means to come up against brick walls, about what it means to be in desperation, about what it means to be hungry. That if you are hungry, when you are desperate, if you are, when you are hungry and when you are desperate, you are perfectly positioned to receive from God. The younger son's countenance is starting to shift. Where before, he thought to himself, I would be better off with my dad dead and all of his stuff. I just want his stuff. I don't want him. Now he's desperate. And he's saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to be back at the father's table. To be back in my father's presence. And I think Jesus is teaching a deep lesson about the heart of the father here. And the sense of desperation that he initiates. The, the younger brother doesn't just come to his senses, as the NIV politely puts it. <laughs> He's not just like, oh, I've got a great idea. Why don't I go back? There's a deeply embedded sense of home in the younger brother that's not being fulfilled out with the pigs. And we are the same way. Jesus knows that we're the same way. That when Jesus gets us desperate, when he has us hungry, when we are experiencing adversity, it's designed to bring us closer into communion with himself. We at Vineyard Cleveland are learning that when we're vulnerable and we're open and we're just saying, we need you, God. We don't have it all figured out. I don't know where to go. I don't know what decision. Where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of life. It's there that's a backdoor to Jesus' presence. It's in adversity we experience the nearness of the Father. That's where we're called back into communion with this generous Father who literally rips himself apart to provide inheritance for a son who doesn't deserve or want him. That's really good news. And in verse 18, the younger son rehearses this monologue. Do you hear him re rehearsing the monologue in his, in his own head uh, as to what he'll say to the father once he gets back home from this far-off country? He's prepping, he's rehearsing to grovel at the father's feet. Any of you ever done that with the father? You mess up a real big one? 
And you start thinking in your head as if the Father can't read your thoughts. You're like, man, I wonder what it's going to take. If I just say these magic words, or if I just pray this many hours, or if I go to church, if I just tithe this much, if I, if I just, um, if, maybe, maybe if it's if I bow as opposed to standing. Maybe, if, maybe it's in the actual physical way that I'm, maybe that's it. Then he'll, then he'll reinstate me back home. Any of you guys ever done that with God? That's what the younger son is doing. He's prepping and rehearsing how to grovel at the father's feet. And it's based on this false expectation or reaction that the younger son never gets. I love that about God. He's banking on, he's expecting this reaction he thinks he's going to get. When we become accountable for what we've done and he experiences just the opposite. See, the younger son thinks in order to be restored, he has to earn. Do you, any of you feel with God that in order to be restored with him, you need to earn that restoration? All of us. All, Jesus knows the human heart so well. All of us feel like that at one point or another. We feel like in order to be restored, we need, in order to be restored, we need to earn that. And Jesus is displaying here in this telling of the story that that's not the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. I love this part. The scriptures say, from a long way off. Everybody say, a long way off. A long way off. The Father sees him. Long way off. The Father sees him. Check it out. I lost it. Find it. Long way off. There it is. But while he was, I'm a long way off. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. A long way off. So, He ran to his son is sort of mild too. And this is something that a Jewish man over the age of 25 would never do. Why would you never? You don't, you don't run if you're a grown-up male in Jewish society. You just don't run. You don't run because you're wearing a robe or a tunic and you expose your legs as you run. You don't. This is something that a father would never do in front of all of his servants, in front of all of his household. We are told, Jesus says, that the father races. That this father is a racing father out to meet the son. And so he meets him out there. And this is how God is with us. He shames himself with the shame of the cross, by sending his son, by becoming human, he shames himself, actually, in order to spare the, the son the shame that's due to him. So this son is stinky. He's been feeding pigs. He's definitely, wor he's definitely sh worthy of shame. 
in the eyes of the culture. And the father does the thing that shames him in, in order to spare the son the shame that's due to him. I love that. And that's how the father is with us. And so the implication here from a long way off is that the father has been looking for him. Isn't that cool? In the parable of the lost sheep, we read that the good shepherd goes out and seeks the lost sheep. Here we're told that the father sees him from a long way off. Implicit in that is that the father has been getting up every morning, looking, awaiting for the first glimpse of the younger son to crest the hill, to see him a long way off so that he can then sit there and wait for him to come to the gates? No, race out to meet the son who was dead, but now is alive. So the son starts to grovel his rehearsed prayer, and the father's like, I don't even want to hear it. Immediately, the father reinstates the son. It says, quickly, how long does it take to cook a steak? However, however long it took to cook a steak in ancient Jewish culture. Kill the fattened calf. Put a robe on him. Whose robe? The best robe. Whose robe? The father's robe. Grab the best robe and clothe him with that. Put the ring on his finger. Get the dance floor out. It's time to celebrate. Enough with the groveling. Now, I'm not saying there's not a space for repentance. But the younger son shows his repentance in returning home. And the father says, quickly, let's celebrate. I don't want to hear about any of that stuff you're home. You're home. Act two, the older brother. The fattened calf, what does that have to do with anything? That's one of those words that we look over in like church world and we're like, I know it's important. Have you ever heard the story about the Sunday school teacher who's showing the kids the flashcards and she shows them, uh, uh, the little kids, a picture of a squirrel? And the, 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 there's a young boy who's listening to the Sunday school teacher. And, and the Sunday school teacher says, now kids, what is this? And all the kids are quiet because you're quiet in church and you're afraid to say the, the, the wrong thing. And so the little boy thinks about it and he's brave and he gets up enough courage. And he says, uh, I, I think it's a, it might be a squirrel, but I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. And that's the way we feel about the fattened calf. We're like, I think that's important. It's probably about Jesus, but I'm not really sure. So I'm just going to say this is about Jesus. Well, you'd be right. It is about Jesus. But what, is, what Jesus is communicating here is definitely allusion to his death and him, um, him being consumed by sinners as a choice meal. But it's more than a choice meal. Have, guys, have you ever wanted to treat your wives to a really nice meal? And so you get all dressed up, you say, we're going out for a date night, maybe it's your 20th anniversary or something, and you pack up the car and you go to the restaurant and you sit down at the table and you open the menu and you're like, hey oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> you're like, you're like, you're, you're like, okay. Uh, I'll have the chicken. <laughs> I'll have the chicken because what I really want is that filet, that surf and turf. That's just going to be so buttery goodness lobster and, 
you know, perfectly done filet mignon, but you're like, I know what I earn, and I'm chicken, thanks. I'll have chicken. What Jesus is trying to communicate through this, the telling of the story is that when the father says, kill the fattened calf, this was like, this was like the meal of a lifetime. And he's saying that this circumstance of the younger son returning home is worthy of a once-in-a-lifetime celebration. It's not beautiful. In Jewish culture, to kill the fattened calf, you only get one chance to do that in life. And the father says, this is it. This is worthy of celebration. So what makes the older brother so angry? Any older brothers in the room? I'm a younger brother. Go easy on me. But what makes the older brother in this story so angry? I think, one, it's a question of resources, for sure. The older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. They're both lost in opposite directions. And as we look into the older brother's story... He's a little bit, he's a little bit ticked off. And the older brother says, this idiot, this guy asks for probably my share of the inheritance as well. And you give it, and look how, look what he does to the father. He says, look, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. In the Greek, this word look is very much devaluing or dishonoring of the father. So he's shaming the father once again and saying, look, look it. I know better than you. And it is a question of resources. So the older brother is saying the exact same thing as the younger brother. I want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't trust you, dad, with resources that will eventually be mine. Can you see it? And so it's lostness. It's the same lostness in opposite directions. So where desperation fuels the younger son to repentance and back into the presence of God, anger here from the older brother following the rules for the older brother leads to entitlement. The older brother is just as, for him, He said, I never disobeyed you. I kept all of your commandments perfectly to the T. And the deeper truth that Jesus is trying to com communicate is that following the rules, because of who he is, because of who Jesus is, following the rules never leads to presence. I I'm sorry, I think I just offended like half of the room who are rule followers. I know I'm married to a rule, a rule follower, and I love her, and her moral compass has guided me over the years, for sure. Such a strong sense of integrity. And you rule followers, I want to acknowledge that. And 
At the same time, Jesus is saying to us who love to follow rules that we can follow the rules all day long and it won't lead us to Jesus' presence. When we try to follow rules, in this case, it leads the older brother to a sense of entitlement and anger. And I want us to see that. That they're both. The younger brother is like, self-discovery, where can I sow my wild oats? No rules, you see. No, no rules. I'm going to go live it how I want. I'm not going to listen to my father's voice. I'm not going to listen to anybody's voice. I'm just going to do what feels good. Self-discovery. We'd say, he's lost. Equally, the older brother is lost in the other direction. I've done everything right. I deserve this, that, and the other thing. I'm not going to do anything wrong, ever. Both, Jesus says, you're both lost. You're both lost. So as we close it, I wanted to read to you this quote from Flannery O'Connor. She's an author, and she says this about one of her characters. She says, The boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was the way to avoid sin. Say again, the the conviction. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The younger brother was lost through self-discovery. The older brother was lost through earning. If I'm good, God will bless me. The younger brother has a list of things that he needs to repent from. The older brother has a list of why he shouldn't have to repent. A Pharisee is still a Pharisee even after he repents. There are reasons to why we do good things. Just like there are reasons that we do bad things, yes? And what Jesus is saying is, you're both lost. And in a louder megaphone, is saying that you have a Father who covers you all. Whether you're lost in self-discovery or you're lost in rule-keeping, the Father is kind to you both. The Father is eternally kind to you both. There's this old hymn by James Proctor, and he says, Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Your deadly goodness. Cast it down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone gloriously complete. It is finished. Your good and your bad deeds. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot and tittle. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? To lay our deadly goodness down. There's a wonderful book by Brian Zond. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And it's really a a play on one of the most famous American sermons of all time. You guys know it. It's written by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there's um, imagery. You remember the imagery of the spider dangling over the fires of hell, you know, just kind of like hanging by a thread. And 
Zond writes this book as a response to what Jesus is doing in his heart as for so long he preached that sermon, paraphrase, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Jesus was showing him that that wasn't who the Father was actually. And yet, that's how so many people are scared into the kingdom of God. Because we're scared of a wrathful, revenge-filled God, a sadistic father, And Zond, in the writing of this book, which I think is a genius piece of work, says that's not who God is. That's not what he's like. Here's what he's like. Listen to what Zond says about the hands of the Father. Let's meditate on this as we close. The monster God has faded away, and today I preach the beauty of God as it's revealed in the face of Christ. But that doesn't mean there are no monsters. Monsters of war, violence, greed, exploitation, oppression, racism, genocide, and every other form of anti-human abuse continue to afflict our species with unimaginable suffering. If we try to manipulate these monsters for our own self-interest, they will eventually turn on us and destroy us. We can call this the wrath of God, but the hands of God are not actually hurling thunderbolts from heaven like Zeus from the Greek pantheon. The hands of God have been stretched out in love where they were nailed to a tree. The nail-pierced hands of God now reach out to every doubter and sufferer, revealing the wounds of love. The hands of God are not the hands of wrath, but the hands of mercy. To be a sinner in these hands is where the healing begins. The invitation of the Father for all of us this morning is to come home. Come home. See the Father's hands of love. Wounded wounded by the nails we pierce Him with outstretched and extended towards us. We shamed him, he brought glory to us. We wounded him, he offers to heal us. So wherever you are, your experience of a less than perfect father here on earth, and we've all dealt with that example. I want to invite us, as I believe Jesus does through this story, to experience the perfect father. One who will never give up on you. One who will never cause trauma to your life, only goodness. The one who doesn't subtract from your life, but builds to you. Who's actually concerned, who has the time of day for you. Who is never too busy, never at work, and can't take your call. All of the ways that your earthly father, my earthly father, have let us down. This is the perfect father who says, I love you, I'm racing out to meet you. You don't have to earn any of a a single drop of my love. You already have it. You're already reinstated. Puts his own robe over you, clothes you with compassion and love, reinstates you on the spot and cooks you a wonderful steak dinner once in a lifetime. My son has come home. He was dead and now he's alive. That's the father. That's who he is. Why don't you join me in standing?